0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. This is our 100th episode, Yay! guys. We <laughs> And we have the privilege of being joined by our friend, Dr. Mark Merlin. Uh, he's been on the show a bunch of times. He's been a super helpful resource during this project. Uh, And we're really happy to have him on. Uh Thanks for coming back, Dr. Merlin. We appreciate
1: it. No, I would do anything for you guys. Anytime you need, <laughs> just give me a call. I'll come back. So oh, uh, I might
2: I might need medical control on Saturday. Is that right?
1: for medical control, I'm still a twenty four seven guy. So I
0: mean, I, my phone's on all the time. Uh, the reason that we had Doctor Merlin on today is so this is our hundredth episode. We've been doing the show now for about five years, and we thought it was a good opportunity to kind of sit and reflect on what we've seen over the past five years, and to discuss growth and how we can change systems and why systems are resistant to change. So. Uh, Dr. Merlin, our audience is, is probably all fairly uh, familiar with you, but if you want to catch them up on what you've been doing over the past couple of years, please do, um, and then we'll we'll get into it.
1: Sure. So I've been chair of the state uh, um, EMS council. So there's 34 separate committees that reported to the state EMS council under uh, the Department of Health, specifically OEMS. That ended December 31st. So And then that was for four years and six years before that for the New Jersey MICU Advisory Board. Um, I've been in, in New York city helping take a company public that was in 26 states with 6,000 employees. That was, um, a, a, a software tech finance company in the healthcare sector. And, uh, I did that for about two years, did a lot of research, published about a hundred papers and got some federal NIH dollars, uh, started the starting and create the largest EMS fellowship in the country. I uh, turned that over to the number two person and started out uh MD1 which is a nonprofit physician response program which did a lot of cool stuff from um Reboa to low tide or whole blood to double seamless defibrillation to a lot of really cool innovative uh programs and now many of my um former fellows or medical directors of major cities throughout the entire world so I go around and uh, visit them periodically and see the different EMS systems that they've changed dramatically. And we've done all of the protocols. And then uh, I'm medical director for a company called MedHealth Partners, which is the highest volume um, fixed wing medical plane company in the, in the U S continental area. So in the United States, in the continental U S sorry. And um, that's three companies. So I'll merge into one. So there's a lot of work there. So I spent some time in my office in Georgia and uh, teaching a lot of folks medical stuff. And what I'm doing mostly is uh, consulting work now and trying to take a few hours off uh, every here and here and there, which is uh, uh, new to me. So it's a lot of consulting. That's mostly what I do uh, at this point in my career.
0: Well, that's certainly something that we're we're very bad at at EMS is taking days off and taking time off. So we're we're both very excited to hear that you're uh, you're taking some time for yourself here. Um, and and again, that that resume is part of the reason we wanted to talk to you today. Just kind of looking back on what's changed over the past five years, and then wh- what can we do to try and implement change uh, on our own. So a- as someone that has worked very hard your whole career to be a change agent, saying that in the past five years we've seen changes to you know, backward protocols, the use of red lights and sirens, which was our first episode way back when, um, and even dual sequential uh, defibrillation, you were kind of, you were one of the, the principles uh, applying that into the field. So I, I guess my first question is, if we're looking to change and better the industry or our environment, I guess, whose responsibility is it? And what steps can we take to start making at least small incremental changes to make the industry better?
1: Well, I used to say that things take 3 to 17 years to change once the paper comes out. I still do that. I get emails all the time. We created uh, the More method, which was the method for figuring out blood loss for patients in hemorrhagic hemorrhagic shock, really the only method that exists. And that's now uh, several years old. And I still get emails going, hey, I just read your article. Um, we want to implement it. Nowadays, mm-hmm. if you Google it, because of good search engines, the more method, it'll come up. But still, most people who are uh, doing EMS don't even know about it, right? And that was the whole goal. Things don't change quickly. And um, that's a problem in healthcare in general. Um, I used to get a kick when when I was uh, chief medical officer for Monarch that we would be leading the way. We were doing stuff before the hospitals were. Right, we were doing push dose pressors. The hospitals weren't doing that. We were doing double sequence defibrillation. The ketamine.
0: Hospitals I remember ketamine being a the time
1: too. Yep. We were doing, you know, we were doing that. The hospitals weren't doing that. You know, we were doing double sequence defibrillation. You know, the hospitals weren't doing that. We were doing push dose nitro. The you know for acute decompensation yeah. failure, the hospitals weren't doing that. And then we would have meetings, and some of the E.R. physicians would say to me, "Hey, I tried this. Nobody knew what I was doing." And uh, now we're doing it all the time. We, I mean, even the high-flow nasal cannula at valves. The the problem is, you know, people always ask me, what's the one article you would recommend reading? I have no time. And it used to be this brand new cutting-edge article. Now it's the same article. The only difference is the article was published in 2012. So what's that, 10, 11 years ago 11 now? 11 years old, yeah. Eleven by, years By Scott Weingarn, Rich Levitin. And basically, it's an oxygenation article. Mm-hmm. And I think about this that when people want cutting-edge stuff, I send them an article that's over 10 years old, right?
0: And it, it amazes and me that me people are still unaware changed, of
1: it. <laughs> Yeah, they tell me it changed the way I practice. And I'm like, if the article that long ago is changing the way you practice, we're doing something wrong to disseminate information. And that's because we come up with standard curriculums and we stick by it, right? I still remember somebody taught me four cycles of CPR in 52 to 73 seconds. I can't get that out of my freaking head. It's just <laughs> ridiculous. I had to memorize that. I had to do those freaking tapes that came out of, you know, the, the mannequins, and you only allowed so many compressions to go above the line or below the line. And we were so focused on a checkbox on an algorithm that there wasn't even five minutes spent to out-of-the-box current thinking. Right. And that's what we could do better, right? We could take a few minutes in every class and not to not do the curriculum of course we can do the curriculum but a few minutes to talk about cutting edge changes that are now by the way not cutting edge now they're 10 years old right, right. and you know that's how we teach people you know in academic settings we teach them based upon articles not textbook chapters right textbook chapters are outdated now listen anatomy is always going to be the same for the most part right the krebs cycle will always be the same for the most part
0: it had better but, be. The amount of time I put into the Krebs cycle had right. better never change.
1: <laughs> but, but you know, ways to oxygenate. You know, I remember when like bougies were like the a hot topic. Oh you know? my god! Yes, remember and, and, when that was now, like voodoo. right, and people are like you know, and and even and now I still give lectures and I say, how many of you have peep valves on your BVM, and I I I only get two answers. One is everybody looks at me like, um, of course we do it. We all do it. What are you even talking about? Yeah, we've always the, done
0: that, <laughs> sir. And, and
1: the next <laughs> audience says, "What do you? I mean, we've never heard of that. What are you talking about?" And there's very little in between, right? That's interesting. So we we need to do some out of the box thinking every opportunity we get. Even now, I still maintain medical directorship of a few um, a few EMS services. And I do this mostly because, and for many of them, I do it for free, some I, I, I ask for money to cover my insurance. But um, I always say, you know, to everybody, even lay people, you know, the problem is if you're waiting for 911 to come, you're waiting too long, right? 911 will never get there in the first 60 to 120 seconds. Right. It will never happen. And when an emergency strikes, that's the most important time. So I say to BLS crews, when you went to the pool for near drowning, or somebody has a laceration, or something you know serious or something silly, what did you do to educate the lifeguards? You know what did you do to educate the manager of that restaurant? Because that's the biggest impact you're going to have in your shift. It's not going to be the freaking cardiac arrest where you intubated and put an IV in. That will affect one person, but if you can get the manager of the restaurant, the manager of the pool, the manager of the stadium to understand that it's how you train your providers who have no education in medically, right? They may be very smart, and it, do you have a bleeding control kit available? Do you have an epinephrine auto-injector? Do you have naloxone? You know, do you have an AED? That's what's going to change outcome, right? Right a hundred, you know, a hundred percent of the time you can you know, people think that calling 911 is the answer. And I'd say till I'm blue in the face, that's part of the solution. Right. But that's right, not, but it's, it's not a holistic answer. The answer is what do you have for your skill set? Because we all know this response times aren't real, you know, vertical response times, uh, you know, or, or horizontal response times. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, vertical response times are real. You know, you're on the 10th floor how long is it going to take you to to, to get up to the tenth floor and find the patient? Right, and right. nobody comes to meet you outside. You know, it, it's just really challenging. Or you happen to live in a house that's way off the road where the numbers aren't posted well, or there's no good lighting. Yeah. What have you done on every call? And I pose this to everybody in EMS to educate the people in the house because nobody else is going to do it if it's not you. They're not going to do this in the emergency department, right? Not and gonna it's, it's just going to keep it. happening again. Well, it's I think it's interesting.
0: Happening. It's interesting to discuss because you hear. I, I think we we hear in conversation a lot of criticisms. You know, frequent flyers. You know, known clients. Whatever terminology you want to use. And I, I do wonder how often providers will educate. Like, hey, this is how you use a glucometer. Are you using your insulin correctly? When was the last time you saw an endocrinologist? Like, I, Danny, how many diabetics do you think that we treat where we could probably just give simple bedside instruction? that might actually either reduce the call volume or improve that patient's outcome?
2: Well, I think there's a lot. And I think that the the bigger issue here that that, that Dr. Merlin's getting at is we have a public education responsibility that we haven't realized in this industry. Um, Just like the fire departments and the police, they've, they've branched out in this community education stuff and the fire service has done it amazingly well. And for EMS, it's still piecemeal or it's non-existent um I, it's it's amazing we do go to these super users and it's sometimes it's very it's very easy like even to the point of hey mrs smith if you called us yesterday you wouldn't have to we wouldn't have to put you on cpap for your cop day right. if you if you had called us when this started we would have been able to do more for you um you know, and that does talk. That does speak to addressing their fears and addressing issues. But it's also education, and we're not. We're. I don't think we've scratched the surface of that. What do you
1: think, Doc? We haven't. It, it and and it's it's the people we we interact with every day that really matters. I mean, we don't use BLS and ALS throughout the world uh, as uh, for community outreach like we should, right? That that that's what needs to be done, and like I just said, bleeding control kits, naloxone. This is all one package, by the way. To have an AED with no like epinephrine auto injector doesn't make sense to me, right? These are all emergencies, and when you have anaphylaxis, if you're waiting, you know it's very simple. If you're waiting for nine one one to get there, you're waiting too long, right? And that's the few minutes that people die. So what's you know, and this is what I enjoy. I enjoy difficult crowds in lectures, right? And I enjoy getting going to them and taking people who normally just text on their phone during a whole lecture and saying the next 30 minutes, you, I'm going to help you save the lives of your coworkers and your family. Because it's not just what's in the, you know, the pool or the stadium or this or that, you know, or the restaurant, it's what's in your house, right? And this is where we're going now, you know, we're going to... The future model is home AEDs, right? When prices are coming down, you know, AEDs are getting smaller. That's the future, right? The future is, you know, home epinephrine, you know, the, the, the future is all this stuff. You don't need me, right? And the truth is, you, you know, you need you need me for a tiny, tiny bit. You need ALS for a tiny, tiny bit. You need BLS for a tiny, tiny bit. But you need someone who has some knowledge of what to do when somebody's bleeding in the first 120 seconds. And that will never be any of us, right? But we have the opportunity to teach these people because we do this for a living, right? So who better, right? And you know my rule. My rule is always, rule number one, any medical emergency is to stay calm, Mm -hmm. right? It's okay. Don't just do something, stand there. Right, right. You know, there's only two types of (laughs) bleeding, folks, right? This is what I used to say. There's internal and external. And when you're bleeding externally, I'm a happy freaking camper because i know how to stop external bleeding i got lots and lots of resources right but the bleeding internal i can't put pressure on it and that worries the crap out of me right so this is why you have to tell people because how many of us have seen somebody die in hemorrhagic shock from external bleeding when they didn't have to right and 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 sometimes of course vessels are so you know mangled that you know nobody could stop it it doesn't it it, it shouldn't happen that much anymore But, you know, we've all seen people who have hemorrhagic shock from a little bit of bleeding because it just wasn't managed before we got there, you know. And, you know, the EMT class still, you know, is a good course, but it only can teach you so much medically. It's only a few hours of medical training. So what do we do for these folks to say, let's talk about what's outside the box a little bit, not part of the standard curriculum. Let's talk about what we do now, but we can't tell you what we do. Now, because the curriculum can never keep up years with the old. way the science changes, right? right? No matter how good your curriculum is, it can never keep up with how fast the science changes. I
2: I'm amazed. Very, go ahead, sorry, I'm I'm amazed that we still don't have something in the EMT curriculum for dealing with bleeding from a uh, an AV fistula from a dialysis patient, which happens on the regular, and yeah. you still see people like not being able to handle this, and it's not. I'm, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at the, the, the lack of focus.
0: I think that we put on that, that this, like part of the problem I think we have is that we haven't desensitized the, the EMTs and first responders that we're putting out for like the most dangerous things. How many lay people like don't want to do CPR on a dead body because they're afraid they're going to hurt the dead body. Now take the time to put that together. I don't want to do CPR on a dead person because i might because hurt we,
1: them you send ambiguous and, messages
0: right exactly I, it, it's, it's a it is the yeah. lack of training it's just instead of saying listen if someone's bleeding put your hand on it apply direct pressure stop the bleeding
1: right because we, we give lectures that are 50 slides and i get up there and i hate slides and and I I, I I usually say to people let me just start with the bottom line if you give naloxone when it was not indicated it's totally okay how dare yeah. you sir right how, how and dare I say you, it all the you time. Speak? and people yeah, say well, what mean, about yeah. this what about that i said i i usually say well tell me talk to me if they know me and tell oh. them i don't agree with that but people show word Well, even tourniquets right let's be honest some people put tourniquets on when it's totally not necessary absolutely right and and let me tell you what the bottom line is it's totally freaking okay because if so, we, we'll take it off right in a controlled setting i'll take it off and And that's okay, because I have many other options open to me. But if you mess up and you don't put it on in that moment of crisis, right, somebody's going to die. So that's the kind of education message we should send to somebody. And you said, you know, why don't we teach this or that in EMT or paramedic curriculum? I don't know. I mean, why don't we teach interception in, uh, in paramedic curriculum? It's the one abdominal pain disorder that I worry about every night. In kids, six months to six years in a, in the pediatric ER, mm-hmm. it's right? something
0: we could actually recognize and maybe treat too. We like right. not fix, i can't saying fix give it, Like but...
1: ten hours on it. No. I'm saying put it in the why not put it in the book. Now it's, you could it's a thing you deep.
0: can give them you know ketamine or fentanyl for it, and then that, that's there's, it. It's it's, so it
1: there could be lots of like things that aren't in there, but it's because traditionally they haven't been, and that's just like one little example of many things. Now for sure. you, you could argue that there's lots of things we can't teach, but you know, I mean, how many cases? Let me see. Have you, have you seen over the years of multi pneumonia? You know, where somebody was hypoxic. But how many? How much education did you get on pneumonia or sinus infections or? Well, so and, and this, this is what we see so much. And this right? is a really good and,
0: point that I, I kind of want to tease out a little before we get to the next thing. When we talk about how patients are treated, and we talk about it's often just checking boxes, it feels like. And again, I'm speaking from anecdote, but I can also say just having spoken to a bunch of like my colleagues across the country, it feels like a lot of times protocols are written and obviously it's to reduce litigation, which is silly because there's not as much EMS litigation as people think there is, but it's, we're, we're catering to the lowest common denominator. So, and instead of trying to lift the lowest common denominator, It's bringing, you know, the standards and staff down to that level. So things like something that makes me want to throw a rock through a window is when I hear that a sat below 93 requires a medic unit, that hearing a a BLS agency tell me that will give me a stroke every single time because it doesn't allow for, is it 93 who is patients a COPD patient or is it 93 where they're perfectly fine until one moment they weren't like it's not. It, it's not a it's not a diaspora. So like, I always say know, right. you know, a holistic thing.
1: So there are a lot of sayings like that, right? Like a sap below ninety three. So I usually say Look,
0: Glasgow less than <laughs> eight means <laughs> intubate. <laughs> right,
1: actually, I was just about to say that. So I usually say if uh, when somebody takes a, a a saying like GCS less than eight intubate, I felt followed up by pay attention. So GCS think less than. Think eight about what you're doing. For it. if it it I, I just intubate, choose not to
0: answer you, my Glasgow was right? less than eight. You're not going to. GCS gonna
1: less than eight means, hey. You got my attention. Let's figure this out, right? Pulse ox less ninety three. You got my attention, right? you know, finger stick less than seventy. You got my attention. I gotta like, I gotta get it. Sure. I gotta you know, get off my butt and do some stuff. You mm. know, heart rate greater than one fifty. I gotta pay attention, right? There, there's no absolutes. As you get smart, everything gets more confusing. That's I a great quote about Pearl. I read one to two hours every night, and all it does is scare the crap out of me. How much I don't know. And I mean, <laughs> orthopedics, GYN, you know, and we we've and talked different... about Dunning
0: Kruger a lot on the show before, too. It's it, it's truly I, I mean, I don't want to say it's terrifying because I don't know that's the right word, but it is it, it is very impactful once you realize, like, the amount of stuff you don't know. Like, I'm a moron, so and
1: I'll, I'll, be, right.
0: I'll be the first one to say it. I'm dumb as hell. And but you know, at least it's, it's having that moment to acknowledge it. I think we have a lot of people in practice who will get out of EMT school or get out of medic school and certainly out of medical school who will be like, I know everything now. And it, it, I feel like it takes a while for people to get to that curve. Like, Oh, maybe I don't. And it, it, I feel like as an industry, we kind of get into this self-consuming cycle where, you know, you've been through EMT school, you've been in EMT for 20 years, you know, everything about being an EMT. And it's like, I, I don't know. Right. I've been a medic for almost 15 years and I do not know everything about being a medic.
1: Right. I used to, I just barely you... know
0: everything about being an adult and I've been doing it for almost 40 years. Like, you know, it, it's it's not an easy thing.
1: People used to call me. I used to review so many charts for so many EMS systems and hospitals. People would call and say, "Hey, you're the paramedic Lasix for the multilobar pneumonia." And I used to say, "Listen. You have a chest x-ray and ultrasound, blood work you have a semi-controlled environment, you have a white count, you have a thermometer, you have a nurse doing everything for you, and you still get it wrong all the time. Yeah, and, and we, you have had a, it, we
0: had a stethoscope and an idea.
1: And, 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 right, and a lot of people yelling in the house, right? Yeah. And, we, mm-hmm. and we have a bit of natriuretic peptide, right? And, and look at this, you know, how many people have, you said, oh, I think the guy's in heart failure, and you go, really? You know, the BMP is normal, or I don't think the guy's in heart failure and the BMP is really elevated. Now that that's a perfect test, but you know, you have all these things and we still get it wrong from the initial diagnosis to the discharge diagnosis. Right? I, I think that's an important
2: point that we don't impress on our new students and our clinical students is that we've learned from making mistakes. Yeah. Um, we've learned from screwing up. The reason why I don't screw up on a multi-lobar pneumonia versus CHF anymore is because I've done it before
1: and I yeah. learned. You know, listen, the the most important thing in every freaking study and figuring out your diagnosis is history, right? It's not some blood test, you know, listen, when when you're in an ER, you get it, you order everything. In fact, the nurse is doing it. You're not even doing it. So you get everything back and you make a diagnosis, but nothing's more important than than the history and figuring out what's wrong with somebody, right? Because tests can be misleading. There was a study several years ago that said for every 26 blood tests you order, one is wrong just because of lab error. And awesome. so when you order one blood test, you know, like a CBC or or a CMP, you actually get back like 10 to 15 results. So that means you order two things like that, and, and something's going to be misleading. So if you think oh. a test doesn't make sense, the results, you, you should say to yourself, how am I being misled, right? I always just say, if you do anything twice, and, and you're not getting the desired result, Think about what am I doing wrong? If you give two amps of D 50 or D 25 or D 10 and the blood sugar doesn't go up, what am I doing wrong? And the answer is maybe it's adrenal insufficiency, mm-hmm. right? So I'm interested in the blood draw
2: thing,
0: because I, I know a lot of systems are starting to go back to blood draws and, you know, drawing sepsis panels and all that kind of stuff. Do you feel like that is a, a net positive or is that just a, 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 a skill they're having us do for fun?
1: Oh, so much of it is a little bit insane. I mean, here's one example of many, 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 right? So you have a potential septic patient, right? And by the way, the sepsis sepsis rules are a little bit loose. If you took everybody who was a little had a little fever and a little tachycardic, you'd be you'd be treating a lot of people for sepsis, right? So you have to use your clinical judgment in general. But let's say you have the ability to do pre-hospital lactic acids, right? Well, is that going to be helpful? Well, it depends what your cutoff is, right? It depends which test you're using. If you say uh, anybody with a lactic acid of four has an increased risk of sepsis, well, that's true. If you say that it helps me figure out who's sicker when the clinical uh, signs and symptoms may not be helping, well, that's true. If you get back a lactic acid of like six in a patient you didn't think was that sick, maybe you you, you have to pay attention. But that's, that's what I keep saying, you have to pay attention. Now, if you say our cutoff is a lactic acid of two, well, then I'll tell you about all the people who had nothing wrong with them who had stomach viruses or a, little, a lot of other things with lactic acids. Who went for a, something, a, they went for a brisk walk. Who are young and healthy. So yeah. do you want to know how many people you're going to you know, figure out if they're septic by lactic acid greater than two? Everybody. And you know what? You'll get every other disease known to man too, right? So you have to use it in the in, in the proper context, right? Yeah, you, 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 I mean, a lactic acid greater than four or two. I'm just gonna pay attention. It doesn't mean I'm gonna do anything, right? It just means I'm gonna I'm gonna investigate a little bit more and I'm gonna think about it. Right. So
0: do you are are you of the mind that we're teaching EMTs and paramedics to focus too closely on I, I guess specific data points and not so much the holistic presentation of the
1: patient? But we're teaching everybody, not just EMTs. Or okay, well, guess. <laughs> but, 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 but but that's, you know, there's many reasons for that. One is because our time period with patients is diminished dramatically, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's being asked to see more patients in less time with, with more help. It's really easy to be in a hospital and, you know, somebody says, do, do, do you want like a CBC or a CAT scan? And you're like, sure, press the button, right? right. And then you could do it right so it's it's not too hard to do it it's harder to use clinical skill set and clinical skill set you know you can get you, you definitely get things wrong you get things wrong when you order all this imaging tests right but you you get things wrong i mean we're we're at the we're at another crossroads but i hate being the guy who gets on here and says we're at a crossroads there's too few medics um you know we can't get to our calls there's not enough volunteers God, if I hear that one more time. It would be such a hot
0: take. You'd be the first person to say it on this show.
1: (laughs) I'm going to jump off a bridge. We've been saying this for 30 years, and they were saying it before that. It's the same old conversation. And you know what? You know what? Life goes on. We still go to 911 calls. The entire system hasn't collapsed, even though we're under the impression it will tomorrow. Right? It, it, It may not be as good tomorrow, but it's not going to all collapse. Right, sure. Right, I mean, it's, it's the, not going to totally a go away.
0: Industry, of like, of course, it's going to exist. It's just a matter, I guess, of how it's going to look. So, it, it now, now that we spent the the past half hour just kind of bitching about the system, um, <laughs> it, how do you? It, I, I guess what I, I guess the question I want to ask is what what excites you? What do you see in the next five years, say, of EMS? Right. Um, and obviously, I you know it, we can't talk about how to solve the the staffing problem. I, I think there's A bunch of ways to talk about solving that ranging from salaries to training and and whatever else but
1: what is it nothing's new right no No, are brand new and by the way i don't like to offer any complaints without offering solutions hence my solution of teaching emts and paramedics hey this is not part of the curriculum but let me give you like a little idea about what what we're doing now like in real life you know and and teaching
0: that way too is also it's engaging because it makes it almost makes the the student feel like you're letting them in on a secret You know, like, like, Hey, I got a little story for you, you know?
1: Yeah. All I got to do is pull one paper from this week and bring it to class and say, Hey, you know, here's the paper from this week. Some people will be doing this tomorrow. Some people will be doing it in 10 years.
0: So what is it that I guess that excites you? So if I'm talking to someone who wants to go into EMS, you know, 18, 19, they don't have a better idea of the garbage fire that the world around us is. And they're like, all right, I, I kind of want to go into EMS, how, talk to us about how you would encourage that person to walk into the industry, what things you see that are interesting or exciting coming down the road? You know, what, what, what kind of future in your mind do we have to be excited for?
1: Well, listen, the positive side about EMS from an educational standpoint is look at the stuff we're doing now and look at the stuff we were doing 10 years ago. And some of it changed because um, we, we pull people kicking and screaming, right? Wow. And some people changed because people were really smart but we all have to acknowledge there is a lot of different stuff i mean there was a day i mean wasn't it yesterday that we were putting demand valves on everybody right everybody's face we would push mm-hmm. a button you know doing all these terrible things demand valves and we and we had everybody on short boards right and putting cravats between their legs you know for hours as they were as their liver and spleen's were bleeding you know we were t- and we never were using peep valves or hyponesic cannulas you know, and we had, and, and you know, our RSI method was just holding somebody down as hard as you could, you, you, you know, does, just giving this two milligrams
0: life? of Advan and a
1: hope and a prayer or mass trousers or rotating tourniquets, you know, or morphine for acute decompensated heart failure. To me, that all seems like yesterday. So, you know, that's the positive thing. Like things have changed. Like, sure, maybe people like us who have ADHD or want everything done yesterday, nothing <laughs> passed. And I'm not suggesting we change because it's people like us, you know, who kick and scream, who cause some of these changes, right? And you know, but but things have changed, right? And things will never change as fast as I want, but things have changed, and you know, um, and it takes people who think outside the box, like when I stood up at the state and said, you know, Mark, I know you guys are doing, you know, a no longboard protocol. Can you tell the state what your protocol is? And I knew I had to say something I uh, you know uh, a little bit different, so I stood up and I said, okay, never 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 put anybody on a long board." and I sat down right and everybody laughed and the point is I was just trying to be a little radical so people would remember that right mm-hmm. and, and you know and I and you know and that resulted in a ten page protocol right right so but um, well, I,
0: mean, I it, it, that's an interesting point because i I remember the the environment around that change um. And I, I I remember just going to work one day and suddenly there was a sign like don't bring anybody on a backboard. And everyone lost their minds for about two days. And it feels like, you know, and so the, the background for the audience is one day Dr. Rollin put a sign outside the emergency department saying, Don't put don't use a backboard. It's a very simple sign, little nudge. Um, you know, certainly something that Richard Thaler would really appreciate. But about three weeks later, the conversation switched to do we need
2: Longboards, boards yeah and how you, it's, it's, how you create change
0: right yeah it was it was an incredible it was just a it was a fun moment to be in the industry because i i remember the talk was a lot of like well they, you can't do that go ahead Dan.
1: and i would say why right i'm like right who, yeah are gonna show up at your, are the police gonna show up at your house tonight because you're gonna put somebody in a longboard? board well the state's gonna go after us what 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 state is gonna go after you and Ooh. by the way, this Ooh. is not an original idea. We stole this from other people who you're just not familiar with because they don't live within your state. Right?
2: The best ideas are stolen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great
0: great artists steal. Dude.
1: And and, all, and I, I've always hated when people say to me, I don't, I don't want to be the first because then my, my risk of litigation is the highest. Well, I'm glad the first people who, you know, cured polio and created penicillin didn't say this. I don't want to be the first because it'll create too many problems because we never would have any change. Right? Yeah, Danny. I want I want you to make your point. That I want to get back to the litigation thing real quick.
2: Doc, you made a really good point about being radical, and I, I I remember that meeting, and I remember listening to this. Do you do we need? Is this the answer? Do we need more radical in EMS?
1: Well, you know, I think you can be radical and be politically correct. Like I think you can actually be both. Right. I I mean I I, I remember when somebody I I gave a lecture. It was a thousand people. A few years ago now, a thousand people in the room, well-educated people, and somebody came up to me and said, "I don't know if you heard this, but people are trying to stop EMS from putting on backboards. How crazy is that?" And I and all I kept thinking is, part of my lecture is I'm going over the science why backboards are totally inappropriate. You, and you I strap said, in. You know, let me tell, let me tell you about what kind of lunatics we are. And I, and I I said, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. And then I and then I I changed it. So in the first ten minutes, I just said, oh, you know, who's ever using a backboard stop? And everybody laughed. And then I went over to science. So I, I think, you know, you can be radical and create change and you have to do it in the right way. And sometimes you can't go, you can't you, you can't tackle the problem head on. You have to go around in circles. And I think many things are a slow push against a brick wall. And then typically what happens is you start the push against a brick wall by yourself. And 10 years later, everybody goes, Remember ten years ago when we started doing this, and how nobody listened to us. Oh, and yes. I and I'll go, yeah, we, I was there by us. myself, right? Nobody else was there. But revisionist thinking talks about all the people who were there who wanted to do <laughs> it like, initially, which yep, is I, right? I sure it's do remember all of
0: us that day.
1: <laughs> right. It's just the, it's just the way it is. You know that that will never change. I mean, um, right. The, these are some of the things you have to. It's a fine line between causing trouble and you know creating change and but there are some people who do this by the way exceedingly well right there's some people who create change be politically correct you know sometimes they bang their head against the wall the only difference is you know they, they bang their head against the wall in a private room with the door closed right you you can't go out in the middle of you know in the middle of a bunch of healthcare providers and say this is dangerous we're killing patients Like, you know, I've been around the block too. I know what's dangerous and what's not. But you saying that is not going to help your cause. It's just going to make a lot of people not like you, right? The question is, how do you create, how do you get what you want without like saying these things that a lot of smart people already know, you know, what's dangerous and what's not? So let,
0: let's, let's talk about the litigation thing. And again, neither, no nobody on this conversation is a lawyer or an attorney blah, 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 all the disclaimer stuff. Uh, don't play this podcast in court as evidence of what we uh, all that warning stuff. Um, talk to us about li- the potential for litigation as a, t- as a deterrent for either changing protocols or treatments or whatever else. And I, I, I obviously we all think that that's sort of invalid, but if I'm, talking to a department squad, you know, uh, town administrator, and I'm trying to get a change done and they're worried about litigation. How do I, I guess, broach that conversation with them?
1: Well, I guess you could, I mean, objectively, you could tell them how EMS litigation is a lot more uncommon than other types of litigation, right? We all remember the really big cases, right? But the big cases when they appear in the paper are not always the, the outcomes are not always what exactly happened or what happened on appeal right? They don't follow up the story always. You, you know, Um, I mean, there's an there's inherent risk in everything you do. We're in the high risk profession, right? But we have a lot of older people, you know, and who, who would have had bad outcomes when and us being there made their chances better, right? Made their chances better. And we're doing high risk stuff. I mean, you know, for example, I hear people say all the time, you can't do that. It's not FDA approved. Well, 75% of the medications we give are not FDA approved for the reasons we do it in pre-hospital care. That's a terrible argument. But, uh, you know, this. The, the, the objective science says our risk of litigation is much more limited than other people. And, you know, I, I don't think that you stop everything because there's some inherent risk. And, it, you know, it's based upon so many things. It's based upon the age of the patient, the entity you're working for. You know, there's so many things that it's based on. It's not, you know, you just go, I used to tell you, you just go and do the medically correct thing and I will always support you, right? And sometimes the medically correct thing is based upon who has a better argument for what the science says, you know, and how you can convince the court, right? But uh, th- when you get litigated, on, litigated, it's usually things that surprise you a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not the cases that you thought you would get litigated on.
0: Right. Well, and and again, and I'm, I'm not speaking holistically, but it's certainly not over things on, you know, giving too much nitroglycerin uh, and dropping someone's blood pressure below 90 systolic. Like you're you're I, again, not an attorney, but. So so, so
1: <laughs> you get your attorney. Right. I, I am the expert witness for you. Right. They'll always find somebody to disagree because you can always find an expert, right, to, to disagree, many of which you can find because they're getting paid to, to, to disagree. However, some are just being honest and they, they disagree clinically, but you will always find somebody to critique what you did, right? And the only way I know to avoid this is to sit at home, right, and never talk to anybody. Right, so if that's the kind of life you want to, which does sound awesome, by the way, right? <laughs> that's that's the a, life that you sounds terrific. Lead, right, then go ahead and do that. It's just not the life I wanted to lead. So, yeah, we're gonna drop, we're gonna drop some people's blood pressure below ninety with nitro. We are right. We, we're gonna do it. Right. The flip side is never giving nitro, and that's gonna harm more people. And 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 if you just practice based upon fear of litigation right, then you're not going to practice well, because there's an inherent risk in everything we do, right? It's just like the person who got, you know, I gave one dose of an antibiotic, which, uh, and they went to anaphylactic shock. This is an antibiotic that people go to the pharmacy, swallow all the time, and we don't do it, you know, we don't make them take it in, in the hospital. But if you give it enough, somebody will eventually go into anaphylactic shock and die. That could be true for any antibiotic you ever give. So the only way I know to prevent that is to never give antibo- a- a- never take an antibiotic or never give an antibiotic. But is that what you would do, right? Everything yeah. has inherent risk. When Ebola came out, I'd have people texting me driving down the New Jersey Turnpike in the fast lane 80 miles an hour going, what's my risk of dying from Ebola? And I would go, none, but your risk of texting on a turnpike 80 miles an hour is super high. (laughs) Yeah, fairly high. You have to put things into perspective, right? right? But we don't help, right? I mean, let's make it honest. We're the worst people in the world because we put things on TV, right? We put COVID messages on TV. We put influenza messages on TV over and over and over again. And nobody ever says, let me tell you the good news about this. Let me tell you why this is probably not going to affect you. But if you get it, you probably won't die. Right? We we put all the negative, scary stuff. So we get a society that's anxious, you know, and depressed. And then we wonder why. And the answer is we've been sending them the messages to make them that way.
2: No, yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Um, I, I I wanted to look ahead. Um, you've always been kind of a forward thinker. You know, everybody that knows you knows that what do you see coming down in the future for EMS that excites you what 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 are the potentials that you see or what, what things that are just brand new cutting edge now have a real
1: have have caught your eye all right so let me try and think outside the box a little bit because I hate to say the same old stuff so I don't know if you guys know this.
0: The people want to know, when are we going to have mobile ORs in the back of an ambulance when we can start doing <laughs> cutdowns in the field? That's
1: right. Uh, so th- Give me th- escharotomies th- or give me death. A, a week from Thursday. <laughs> I-, I don't know if you guys know this or your viewers know this, but the one of the biggest changes in emergency medicine in the history of it happened 30 days ago, roughly. We had what's called a match. And the match is basically when people pick what specialties they go into. Emergency medicine, or doctors who work in the ER, used to be the most competitive of all specialties. It used to be that one out of 100 people would get into emergency medicine, sometimes less. These were all qualified medical students. And about 30 days ago, emergency medicine had a terrible, terrible match. The worst in any specialty. In general, 25% of all people uh, of all match spots didn't fill. Right. But if you go back a couple of years, emergency medicine was more competitive than like plastic surgery than anything you can imagine. So last year, it wasn't a great match. But about 30 days ago, everybody's talking about this now in healthcare, not just emergency people, every specialty. How emergency medicine used to be the most desired specialty for many reasons. And now it's become incredibly undesired to have 25 percent of spots throughout the country unfilled something is like 500 something like yeah, 500. Is shocking yeah. is shocking that's the biggest change in emergency medicine that's ever happened in my lifetime of, of all the things what does this mean well one it means that um and by the way we did this to ourselves we opened up too many residencies we opened up too many fellowships you know, COVID happened, and and a lot of a lot of people who've been around a while, like me, have retired or semi-retired, left the specialty. There's we're over-regulating ourselves. Half the sh- half the ER shifts, are paperwork and not taking care of patients. There's so many rules you can't keep up with stuff anymore, and we've over-regulated ourselves or been or been over-regulated. And then the medical students see this. They see unhappy attendings. And they see what COVID did to us, right, which was boarding out of control. They saw that your ER physicians complain about boarding, which affected EMS, right, because everybody's boarding. So EMS has to wait longer. And then they saw unhappy doctors. So they're all going into different specialties. This is going to change the world of emergency medicine in the next several years dramatically. And it's going to trickle down. And then it's going to affect EMS. So here's huh. what's going to happen you're going to have less ER doctors. Now, that's okay, because the system is somewhat correcting itself. But I can tell you that emergency medicine is very popular in the bigger cities. If you go in rural places, there are still doctors who work in acute care emergency settings who are not trained in emergency medicine. So if you don't think that's scary, I would say then that it doesn't bother you that your intern is just taking you to the cath lab, right? Because they didn't train in cardiology or interventional cardiology. And now they're gonna have a tube in your heart. Does that bother you? So this is gonna yeah. change dramatically. And now we're going to have, now we're going to have more people that we need to help in the emergency department. And some of those people will be EMTs or paramedics because we're not going to have enough doctors. We're going to have the whole world of physician assistants or now associates are changing, right? So they're getting to do more stuff, being around more, same as nurse practitioners. I mean, years ago there were like almost no PAs and almost no nurse practitioners. Now that's kind of exploded, meaning there's so many of them, and we're gonna auto correct. We're gonna correct the fact that we've had a surplus of physicians, but yet physicians don't want to go where the openings are, right? That's driving up their salaries, but they don't want to go. So we're now gonna have EMS providers who are in more demand to work in other settings. We've put them in mobile health services in general. We've put them in more settings. Departments of Health or OEMS in multiple states are expanding their scope of practice, which is a good thing. But we'll have them work more in emergency departments. And the hospitals might pay them more money, right? Because they're working for a different title. And now we'll have a bigger problem with filling shifts pre-hospitally. But if you're a paramedic and you start out pre-hospitally when you're young, and eventually, you say, you know, I can't lift patients anymore. I'm now fifty or sixty or seventy. Now I can go into the hospital, and I don't have to lift patients. Or if I lift them, I can lift them with ten other people, right? <laughs> so we're now going to have more providers with different backgrounds, including EMS, work in emergency settings. Now, what will happen to systems that are already starved? Well, they're already they're they're already in trouble, and they're going to be in more trouble. I mean, if you look at other countries, you know, I mean, Dubai, the number of paramedics there is exceedingly low, right? Oh. So you'll have more BLS in places than ALS. And people are not going to have um, access to ALS so much throughout the United States because people were being pulled in more directions. And that's the next, you know, five to 15 years, five to 20 years. They're already being pulled from mobile health services. Especially during COVID. Now, some of that's going to go away, right? Because I'm sure you know this. Today, the uh, you know uh, the World Health Organization and 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 uh, Department of Health have declared today the end of COVID. Which um, oh,
0: good, it's just over,
1: right? It's, it's just it's over, done. Which is a little silly because um, we're still seeing a bunch of COVID cases. Thank goodness we're seeing it very rarely to become critically ill, although that mm-hmm. does happen, right? So it was a day somewhat randomly picked, right? Somewhat scientific, but somewhat random. But it does mean that we're going to start start ordering less tests on people or the public will demand less tests. So the numbers of COVID will go down just because we're testing fewer people, right? And Until, until the winter, when it all starts over again. <laughs> right. We, we've used EMS providers to fill these gaps. Now, for some EMS providers, this is great, right? Because one, they're going to... Other workforces, they're earning more money sometimes, right? They're they're doing mobile health services. They're working in urgent care clinics. And in some locations, they're working in ERs. So for some people, I think particularly as you get older and you can't do the pre-hospital job anymore, it's great. Or maybe people can do a little bit of both. I do think it may hurt our workforce a little bit. And that's, you know, that's the concern. But again, we'll have to see what happens with now after today, with probably less um, business organizations needing EMS providers to help them do their COVID testing. But this is a huge change and there's gonna be huge trickle down to EMS over the next several years. What that will mean, I will give you the answer I'm 100% certain of, which is I have no freaking idea and whoever says they do know is totally wrong, right? Because it's a guess, it's all a guess. What the impact will be on EMS Nobody freaking knows. But I, I have to guess and imagine that people who are waiting for, tur- you know, for beds to turn around might wait a little bit longer, right? You have more providers now in the emergency department and less EMS. So that could change the the, the landscape a little bit. But this is, this was such a big deal. You know, we're losing our workforce. We're losing our workforce. Our workforce is changing, Right. And and that's going to have some impact. Um, plus, you know, as you know, there's a lot of like EMTs and paramedics, uh, some of which want to go to PA school and some of which you want to go to nursing school. You know, n- uh, you know, now you're going to have more people, you know, who, who go to PA school and medical school because there's so much advertisement out there. Right. For PAs. And you you know, if you work in an ER, and you're an EMT. You're probably going to interact with the PA who's doing emergency medicine, and that person will, might tell you that they really like what they do because their schedule is pretty good. And then you might say, "Now I want to go become a PA and not a paramedic anymore." I bet and, that's and a, certainly a impact.
0: and certainly there, you know, with with PAs and NPs and all that. I, I recall when I was deciding whether or not to go to medical school, a lot of the conversations like, "Well, PA is a two-year program; it's just a master's degree." And at the time, I was like, "Well, yeah, but I could just go on and be a physician. Like, I, I why would I be a PA?" And it, it, having gone through everything now, in retrospect, I if I'm an EMT and someone tries to sell me being a PA, that's a very attractive package.
1: Um, it, it, it is attractive because it's a great lifestyle. The money's pretty good, although be it you know, it's it's hard to get into PA school now. Sure. Um, but keep in mind, you know, this is another really important thing about education. If you look at most of these programs, like PA, pharmacy, PT, it used to be you could do all this with a bachelor's degree. But what happened? Now you need a master's degree for most of these programs. It's Everything is requiring more education. I used to be a big, big believer that we should offer bachelor's degree programs and push people into a, paramedic, into a bachelor's degree programs. I have done a 180 and I do not think that's true anymore. If somebody doesn't want to go and get a bachelor's degree in EMS, they shouldn't be required. If somebody doesn't want to get an associate's degree, they shouldn't be required. It's not for everybody. Some people are are are, are not great learners, but they can do a great job, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you I don't think you force people to make them. I'm all for I'm all for offering that. That makes sense to me for career advancement. But I don't think we should force somebody's hand, because not everybody wants to use it for career advancement. And we, we shouldn't do anything to block people from getting on the road, right? Especially if they're going to be really good at the job. We know this. Some people in life are bad test takers. Do you know how many people could have been, you know, I hear this all the time, my, my friend could have been a doctor or a lawyer or anything, he or she is brilliant, but they were a terrible test taker. And you know what I say? I say I agree 100%. Right, I Sometimes I, I you sit here. As, you to place I you. sit
0: here without an MD because of an exam. Um, I, it it it's an interesting thought. I wonder. I, I something that I hadn't considered because I I and Danny jumped in on this too because I I've been very pro the idea of an associates or a bachelor's degree for medics, and a lot of that was a function of of pursuing my my bachelor's degree. Um, but I I, could I, I
1: convince I, you to change that sentence to I'm very pro offering. An associate's or bachelor's degree for people who want it, right? And and
0: well, that's what because I'm I'm almost wondering if if making someone go to get a degree almost acts as a gatekeeper. You know, I I almost want like if I have I'm thinking of of colleagues that that Danny and I have, and if you went, if you went to them and compelled them to get a degree, I, I don't know that they would be willing or excited to do it. And it, it seems like having that as an arbitrary benchmark to make. maybe doesn't make as much sense because i I guess the way that i always thought of it was well if you're going to get a bachelor's degree it's going to be a bachelor's degree in paramedicine um but i i don't know that i'm convinced that like dan do you think we could sell people to take a year of organic chemistry
2: if there's something on the back end
0: well Um, and and, and again if
2: there's any if there's something along the lines of expanded scope of practice better opportunities um more money yeah of course that's that's the rub of a college education is that you always earn more than somebody who didn't have a college education then there has to be an incentive because you have to be motivated to do it I mean yeah. you know I, I I didn't want to read de Tocqueville and you know Machiavelli in school but I did yeah. because you got the degree you know it's that was what you had to use uh, do is it I mean do order? I? I don't know I, I don't I know. can, I, can make, oh, I think everyone everyone is smarter for having read Machiavelli. Come on, man. Right. I think you know, I, I think it did help, but I don't know that it made me a better clinician.
1: We are not putting out the same quality doctors that we put out years ago. Okay. And for many many reasons, right? And I'll I'll ask the two of you: Are we putting out the same quality paramedics and EMTs that we did ten years ago? And I'll let I'll let you guys answer that. And I can speak about, you know, the, the doctors, you know, it, it's now it's easy to get an Now it'll be much easier to get an emergency spot. Right. It'll be like yeah. internal medicine or pediatrics. Anybody yeah. can get a spot in internal medicine or pediatrics. It's always going to be hard to get into the top programs in the country like anything. Sure. But to I can't get wait
0: to, to hear the- that argument. We're like, oh, you got an EM. Good job.
1: Yeah. Right. If everybody right. got an EM this year. Well done. Right. Okay. So so what's wrong with a kid who wants to be a paramedic may not be a good test taker, or be a great medic. This is why we don't have amazing doctors like we used to, because we make them go through all this stuff that has nothing to do with healthcare whatsoever. Mm. And and they and they can't do it. Right. Because some people have no interest in taking calculus and trigonometry in college. And you know what? Why don't we ha- why don't we focus them and like learning some medical stuff in college. Imagine how smart they would be. Because the truth is I could teach you at most everything you have to know like in three months, right? In right. three months, right. I could teach you 90%. It would take me, you know, probably three years to teach you the other, you know, uh, 7%. And then it would take me 15 years to teach you the other 2%. <laughs> the rest
0: could... of everything.
1: Right. And to make you like really smart. But most people, you know, you have to, you have to question everything. You have to know how to be a good learner. And um, no, I, maybe, maybe that's the answer. Maybe, so maybe we, that is the answer. We, we don't, are starting we, to come
0: up on a, we are starting to come up on a hard out. So I, I do want to hear Dan, what are your thoughts on the, the degree program thing? And then we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up with
2: that. Like I said, I, I I'm coming around to it. I think we're going to come into a situation where there's already a shortage of, of providers out there um i think it should be offered i think it should be a part of what we do i think it should be required for advancement or teaching i don't know that a bachelor's in paramedicine is going to make you make a better clinician on the street um and i think maybe we need to look at that i think we've gone through some uh, unprecedented times and i think you know those are those are impetus for change, and maybe that's maybe that's where we need to go here. Um, it, it's it's certainly it's it's a valid valid point, and it require and I think we should look at it. I I tend to think
0: that getting some sort of you know secondary education out of high school, almost whatever it is. I I tend to think it makes you a more well-rounded person generally Um, having the guidance of, you know, someone who's an expert in whatever. I, I've always said like, I I truly don't care what your major is. I I just care that you take a major. So my, I I'm more interested in people pursuing secondary education to, I guess, make themselves, I don't want to say make yourself a more holistic person. Um, Because that for me, my, my, life in my world, you got much more interesting after, after going to college. Um, so that, that's kind of my hang up on it, but I don't know that there's actually an operation for, or, or you know, a, a place for people to have a bachelor's degree in paramedicine. I don't know that that would quantifiably make you a better paramedic. I do think that if you're going to school as a medic student, there's opportunities to expose those medic students to different things in the world that will affect not necessarily their clinical care, but how they treat patients. So I do think that if you're going to paramedic school, you should be given like a statistics class. You should be given a, you know, world health problems class, Uh, you know, some like not necessarily a, you know, a business macroeconomics class, but an understanding of how poverty affects healthcare or, you know, like things like that. I think that there's certain intangibles that we don't take the time to teach that I think would change the, I don't want, I hate saying change the attitude of new students coming out because I feel like it makes me sound too boomery. Um, but, you know, it, it kind of sort I of, adju- yeah, like take, take the outlook of what people, cause you know, certainly there's people coming out of EMT and medic school who are like, I know everything and all these calls are bullshit. And it's kind of like, well, okay, maybe we can change that a little bit where they understand that if you're serving an, you know, an inner city community, Chances are you're going to have people with more chronic illnesses because they can't afford medication. That is a function of you know of poverty because of whatever. I, I so will I, say I think that's important, but I, I don't know that just saying like I have a bachelor's in paramedicine by default makes you a better provider.
1: I, I would, give I, a course, in in finances of EMS, yep, a contract negotiation for the EMS provider. You know, know, the legal aspects of EMS. Bring in some EMS attorneys to teach you stuff. Bring in some people to teach you about finances in in what you do. You know, this this will make you a more well-rounded person for what you do. Right? But we don't do this. We don't do this for any medical provider right? We know we are
0: things. bad at teaching finances to all medical providers of, of all stripes, whether it's EMS or physicians or PAs we're, we're terrible at it. We could spend hours going through the rest of this. But I do want to wrap this up. Um, Dr. Merlin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, again, this is our 100th episode. Guys, check out the website, check out all the social media stuff. We're everywhere. And uh, we're going to start growing this year. So get excited for that. Thank you again, Dr. Merlin for the overrun. I'm Ed Bowder.
2: I'm Dan Schwester.
0: And we will talk to you all next time.